Well, children, who likes birthdays? Yeah, what's great about birthdays? Yeah, yeah. Presents, that's right. What else is good about birthdays? Eating cake, that's right. Birthdays are great, eh? And you get that cake that's covered in like 50 liters of sugar and food coloring, and then you bounce off the walls. What do you, do you like birthdays? Yeah, birthdays are great, eh? Birthdays are awesome. You get presents. Presents are beautiful, you know. And you know what your parents really love is when they give you a present and you open it up and you go, ah, you get into it, you get the present, you go, oh, and then chuck it over there and, the, and then get the next one. Your parents love it when you do that, eh? No? What would your parents like you to do? Yeah. That's right. You'd be really happy that they gave you something. Say what? That's right. Say thank you. That would be a good idea, eh? Run up and give them a big hug and be like, oh, thank you so much for my new socks, Nana. I love new socks. And you give her a big hug. Oh, thank you so much. Socks are my favorite. She even put little buttons on the toes. She knows you want to wear them with your sandals, you know, and your favorite color, lilac. Not that I know what lilac is, but lilac, and yes, and you put these socks on and you run up and you give her a big hug, and even if you don't really like the socks, you say, thank you so much. It's amazing. You see, you've been blessed with something, haven't you? And so you want to show thanks. You want to show appreciation. You're not going to worship her because, you know, she's a person. But when God gives us good gifts, what should we do to him? What do you reckon? Yep. Same thing, that's right. We can thank him, we can show him our appreciation, and we can worship him. And in our passage today, we're going to be looking at the amazing things, some of the amazing things that God has done for us. And we're going to think about how that might help us to worship him and love him all the more, because we have been blessed so much by our God and by our Father. And so let's, let's pray. Let's ask God to help us do that because sometimes we can forget what he's done for us. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you that you've blessed us with so many different things. And we ask that you'd help us never to forget but to come back to you over and over and over again and to show, us, to show you our gratitude. Lord, we think of those 10 men that Jesus healed and only one came back to thank him. And we pray that you'd make us like that one. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're turning through to the little letter of Titus. Little letter of Titus. For the sake of our visitors, we've been working our way through the book over the last few months, just doing a very slow meander through the book. We find ourselves drawing towards the end, chapter 3. Uh, the, the other brothers will finish the book off while I'm on holiday. And Lord willing, I'm thinking at this stage we'll turn to a gospel after this and do a fast walk through a maybe gospel Luke of, or something like that. But pray that the Lord would lead us to the right place. But we're turning through to Titus chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verse, uh, verse 5, 6, and 7 of chapter 3. But let's read through from verse 1 to 11. This is God's holy and inerrant word for you today. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, 
to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word to us. And before we come to consider it, let us bow our heads and have a time of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have spoken through your son and we have heard his voice. And we pray now, Lord, that as we come to consider the word of God, that you would speak again through your son, by your spirit, to our ears. We pray that like the churches in Asia, that we would see Christ publicly portrayed as crucified in our midst. That, Lord, we might behold the glorious blessings that you have bestowed upon us, and that we might be lifted up to worship. Help us to see and hear, Lord. For without your Holy Spirit illuminating the word, we will be left dry and barren. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let me just point you to our text. We're picking up at verse 5 from halfway through the verse at by the washing. So he saved us and then by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I was all but finished preparing my sermon, but I wasn't quite sure how to introduce it. You know, this happens sometimes, you sort of end up with the whole sermon, but you don't know how to start. And, and then I took a break and I listened to a sermon by someone on the, on 
the application or the benefits of the five points of Calvinism. And, and one of the things he talked about was the fact that as reformed individuals, we love theology. We love correctness. We love precision. We love the five points. And we love trying to talk to other people and convince them of the truth. And all of these things are good. But if all of these things are the end of our theology, we've completely missed the point. And he drove home one note through this whole sermon over and over and over again. Doctrine must always lead to doxology. Doctrine must always lead to doxology. That's why it exists. We have doctrine so that we would be drawn into the majesty of God and worship him. Be overwhelmed by his goodness, his love, his grace, his mercy. But so often we are tempted to allow our theological precision to become an end in and of itself. It's not that theological precision doesn't matter. I love theological precision. But if that becomes the end in and of itself, we are no better than the Pharisees. Who Jesus said, you search the word thinking you will find life in it. But what did they miss? that I am the life, Jesus said. You miss me. And we can fall into that temptation. And so I want, what I want us to do today is to simply look at the glory of what God has bestowed upon us. That, that Lord willing, by His grace, we might be able to taste something of the majesty of God that we might be lifted up beyond this room, beyond these earthly things, that we might behold God in His glory through the glorious things He's given us. And we're going to look at three things. We're going to see three glorious blessings from our triune God. And I just want to note quickly, did you notice how thoroughly Trinitarian this passage was? It doesn't say the name of Father. But observe that Paul is talking about the Father, and he says, When the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He, being God the Father, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ. Observe the Trinitarian nature of this. Salvation is totally a work of the triune God. And so our praise ought to always be directed towards a triune God. We can never be too Trinitarian, brothers and sisters. We can never talk too much or think too much about the Trinity. The Trinity is the highest and most glorious doctrine that we can lay our eyes upon. And when we ponder it, it should lead us to the most worship, the most praise, the most thanksgiving. Let us see what this triune God bestows upon us. I want us to look at three simple things. He bestows upon us regeneration, justification, and adoption. Three glorious 
deep and yet simple truths. So firstly, he bestows upon us regeneration. The Apostle Paul says, By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Saviour. Now, some authors would argue that washing of regeneration is a reference to baptism, but that the way the Greek is, is structured, it, it seems to point in the direction of the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit to be two ways of stating the same thing, speaking about the renewing of man, speaking about one of the profoundest changes that ever takes place on the face of the planet. You know, they've got those cheesy TV shows where maybe you like them and they're not cheesy for you, but you know what I mean? The cheesy TV shows where they do a makeover of a person or a house or something, and then they have the big reveal. Oh, and everyone's very excited. Far more marvelous than that. Ma Martin, um, Ma oh, man, my brain. One author said, <laughs> forgotten who, as the ride to the Hebrews would say, a author once said, there is no profounder change in the universe than the change which is described as regeneration. Lloyd-Jones, there we go, Lloyd-Jones said that. Stephen Charnock would say, regeneration is a universal change of the whole man. It is as large in renewing as sin was in defacing. Remember last week, Sunday morning, when we looked at the horrible depravity of our nature? And how thoroughly it works its way out in every single part of us? Chanok says that however big that was, regeneration is greater. It's more glorious. It's more spectacular. It's more thoroughly worked out than the sin in the depths of your heart. So why is it necessary? Why is... Why do I need to be regenerated? Why do I need to be renewed? As Paul says. Well, let me remind you of verse 3 that we looked at last week. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. We, we were like... Joshua in the book of Zechariah. Remember in Zechariah, Zechariah sees a vision of Joshua the high priest. And he, he's standing before the judgment seat of God. And the high priest always had to have what? Clean clothes, right? He wasn't allowed to have unclean clothes. He had to wash at the entrance of the temple and put on his priestly robes before coming into the temple. But there he stood in filthy garments, we're told. And Satan stood beside him, accusing him, rightly so, because he was standing before God in a godless way, in a way that was worthy of judgment. And there he stood in his filthy garments. That's you and I, brothers and sisters. We are by nature unclean. We are by nature dead, spiritually blind, and we cannot and will not, and do not want to, turn to God and live. There is nothing inside of us that has any inclination. There is no one upon the face of the planet that wakes up one morning and thinks to themselves, in and of themselves, you know what, I really feel like believing in Jesus today. No, because everyone hates God. That is our state. 
And, and so it's necessary because before God, we are utterly unclean and we cannot turn to him. And so what does God do? He regenerates us. He makes us new. He gives us a new birth, as John would call it in John 3. He causes us to be born again, as Peter would say, to a living hope. You see, it's not enough for us to have a patch job. I mean, we do that on our old cars, right? A bit of bog, a bit of paint, she'll be right. But as, as John Chrysostom would point out, point out, if your house's foundation is ruined and all of the main struts and joists and beams and everything are corroded, you cannot just come along and do a fix-up, can you? No one does. No, they flatten the whole thing and they rebuild the foundation and they rebuild the home. And he says, oh, so much more with us who were dead and decrepit and blind. He doesn't come along and get out the paper and start sanding us. He rebuilds us new. He breathes life into us. He does what he did to Lazarus. Come forth. And the dead come to life. That's what regeneration is, brothers and sisters. And he does it by pouring out a spirit upon us, doesn't he? That's what Paul says here. Have a look at verse 5. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, verse 6, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. We, we haven't forgotten how blind the disciples were, have we? I mean, they were just... I mean, we think to ourselves, three years, Peter... How can you be so clueless after three years with Jesus? Like, how can you still not? How are you denying him? Like, or he's like, Jesus is going, hey, take up your cross and follow me. You know, there's going to be suffering. There's going to be affliction. And Peter's like, don't worry, Jesus. I've got this. I, you know, all those guys, they're all going to abandon you. But not me. I've got this thing nailed. I'm following you to the end of my days. I will die with you. Five minutes later, right, he's like, oh, I don't know Jesus. I don't know anything about this guy. He's calling down oaths and he's swearing on himself. He's like, never heard of the guy. Jesus, Nazareth, I don't even know there's a town by that name. I don't even know what you're talking about. Why? Because he has not received the Holy Spirit. But what happens to Peter after Pentecost? After the Spirit is poured out upon him, he stands up in front of everyone and preaches Christ. One of the most glorious sermons recorded in the Bible. He gets beaten, arrested, put in prison, and eventually crucified upside down for Christ. Because the Spirit of God has been poured out upon him. And it's not just something he did at Pentecost, is it? That, that was a typological, very significant event. But it pointed to a reality that happens to every single one of us. When regeneration happens, what happens is God comes along and he pours the Holy Spirit into the heart of an individual. I was struck when I was thinking about this as I remembered the words of Whitfield, who said, God showed me that I must be born again or be damned. I learned that a man may go to church, say his prayers, receive the sacrament, and yet not be a Christian. 
How did my heart rise and shudder like a poor man that is afraid to look into his account books lest he should find himself bankrupt? Do you feel that, brothers and sisters? I addressed the God of heaven and earth and said, Lord, if I am not a Christian or if I am not a real one, for Christ's sake, show me what Christianity is that I might not be damned at last. And God soon showed me a ray of divine light that was instantaneously darted upon my soul. And from that moment, but not till then, did I know that I must become a new creature. And he does it. We've seen it evidenced here today, haven't we? That God pours out a spirit into the hearts of men and women and makes them alive. And we are the living testimonies, are we not? That God gives grace by his spirit. Westminster Confession summarizes it this way. It says, God is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away the heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh. Let me point you to four simple applications. Firstly, if you're an unbeliever here today, you have one hope. And that is that Christ would give you a new heart. Cry out to God. Like Whitfield and say, make me new. Make me a new creation. Make me a new creature. And if you're a believer here today, if you're a believer here today, don't return to your filth. You know, like the proverb, like a dog to its vomit, the fool returns to its folly. You've been cleaned. You've been washed. You've been made new. Don't return to the mire from which you came. Thirdly, give glory to God. Did you make yourself alive? We can't raise ourselves. I buried Edna yesterday. She can't make herself alive again. One day God will. She cannot make herself alive. So give praise to God if you are alive today because it's by his grace that it took place. And fourthly, pray, brothers and sisters, fall upon your knees because we cannot save anyone. This is why we're having a week of prayer, brothers and sisters. This is why we have prayer meetings. Because we can't save anyone. We can't do anything. We are helpless unless God is pleased to work. The only way anyone's getting saved, the only way we're getting any more baptisms, is if God moves. And so we must be upon our knees every day, pleading with God to work and move in our midst. Do you have loved ones that you want to be saved? Do you have friends? Do you have work colleagues? Yes, share the gospel with them. Yes, give them tracts. Yes, give them the word. But pray. 
God delights not in the death of the wicked. So firstly, God does this glorious work of regeneration and we are living testimonies of it. But secondly, God does the work of justification. The Father justifies. Have a look at verse 7. So that being justified, being declared righteous, it's passive. God, the Father, declaring us righteous in Jesus Christ. Martin Luther, well, tradition says, I don't know if he actually said it, I couldn't find the actual quote, but it's said that Martin Luther once said to his congregation, I have preached justification by faith so often, and I feel sometimes that you are so slow to receive it that I could almost take the Bible and bang it about your heads. It's the theme of every gospel preacher, isn't it? We love to talk about it. Reformation weekend, and we love to talk about being justified by faith and that God declares us as righteous. It's a glorious theme, right? It's a theme written upon our hearts. Who doesn't love to think about the righteousness of Christ accredited to their account? That in spite of all of our brokenness, in spite of all of our wickedness, he would count us as righteous. Why? That's simple, right? It's like we saw last week, Spurgeon said, the reason we can't save ourselves by works is because we don't have any. The reason he had to justify us and declare us righteous was because we were unrighteous. We weren't just a little bit wrong. We were totally, thoroughly, and completely bankrupt spiritually. We had nothing to give him. We had nothing to credit. Because even the good things we did were tainted by our sin, as we saw last Sunday night. Even when we try and do what's right, we do it for wrong motives. Don't you find this? You think to yourself, I'm going to try and be really humble. Have you ever tried that? Have you ever tried to be humble? And about a day later, you think to yourself, well, I'm starting to be really humble. And then you go, oh, that's right, I'm not humble anymore. Ah, it happened again. You think to yourself, oh, I'm going to make sure I I give things away and I won't let anyone find out. I won't let anyone know. And then casually you slip it into a conversation. Everything we do is tainted by sin. We are morally and spiritually bankrupt. But Romans 5 tells us that though sin came through one man, righteousness. And salvation came through Jesus Christ. We have been justified. We have been made righteous, declared righteous. And so when the Shorter Catechism asks the question, what's justification? It says, it is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Or as Calvin would say, being justified doesn't mean possessing some sort of righteousness of your own. It is God seeing a person as righteous, even though he's not. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Because we all feel our unrighteousness, right? 
But God says, I see you and declare you as righteous, though you are not. Brothers and sisters, we are full of sin. And yet God grants us to share in the righteousness of his one and only son. Made perfect in him. You see, it's in union with him so that when he sees you and I, he sees the one we're joined to. Much like you don't, you don't so much love your husband's favorite sweater as much as you love the one who wears it, right? And so he loves us and he makes us righteous because of Christ. It's a glorious blessing. And so if you're an unbeliever, you've got to ask yourself the question, what am I going to do with my guilt? I mean, we all feel guilty, right? All of our consciences get convicted. All of us know right and wrong. Makes no difference if you grew up in a church or not. Every single one of us knows deep down we're guilty of something. Even if we think we're the best person on the face of the planet, deep down we know that there's something broken inside of us. So what are you going to do with your guilt? I mean, one day you're going to have to answer for it. So what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do when you stand before the judgment seat of God with your guilt? You're going to say, well, yeah, but I did some good things. I love my family. But you still have guilt. Your only hope is that someone would take your guilt away. So we sing in that song, Amazing Love, rise, rise and wash your guilt away. I sing that after the sermon. He invites you to. If you're a believer, though, let me encourage you, don't burden yourself with your guilt. Don't burden yourself with your guilt. You don't have any. Paul says in Romans, now therefore there is no more condemnation. If there's no condemnation, why do you keep condemning yourself every morning because you don't think you're good enough? You know how it goes, right? I'm going to make sure I don't gossip today. And then you come to church and you gossip. And so then you heap guilt upon yourself. And you weigh yourself down with a burden bigger than the one that was on Christians back in Pilgrim's Progress. Why do you do that? Lay it down at the cross. Christ's righteousness is upon you. There is no more condemnation. Be free. Silence the devil as well. Remember? In Pilgrim's Progress, if you've read it, there's this moment where, where Christian is walking through the veil of the shadow of death. And as he walks through there, all of a sudden blasphemous thoughts start coming into his head. And he begins to doubt his salvation. And he begins to loathe himself because he speaks and thinks, or at least he thinks he does, of, of God in a way that he never wanted to. And as he hears these blasphemous thoughts, Bunyan tells us that there was a, there was a devil behind him whispering them in his ear. It wasn't Bunyan at all. 
And so often the devil comes and he whispers in our ears, we must silence him. Say to him, get behind me, devil, for I have the righteousness of Christ. When he says you're not worth loving, say, get behind me because I am loved in the beloved. And lastly, live in gratitude, brothers and sisters. Live in gratitude for you have been blessed immensely in him. Yes, we have received regeneration and justification, but let's see one more. We have received adoption. You might say to yourself, where do you see adoption? Well, Paul says, being justified by his, by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Non-biological children don't receive an inheritance, right? I mean, you, you might really, really like your kid's best friend. Like, really like them. Maybe even more than your own children. No, I'm joking. But you might really, really like your children's friends. But they're not in your will, are they? But, but what if... Look, make it really easy and applicable here. Uh, Shanette and Steph live in one of the other person's house pretty much 24-7, okay? So they're either at my house or at the Pup and Fuss's home 24-7. They just bounce back and forth. Every once in a while, we make them take a break. But let's imagine that all of a sudden, Josella and I died. God forbid, but let's just imagine. And the Pup and Fuss family adopted Shanette. All of a sudden, she would become an inheritor of their will. She would be an heir. She would be treated with the same rights and privileges as every one of the Papenfuss children. That's why I say the third blessing in this passage is adoption, because we are heirs of the hope of eternal life. Paul would say elsewhere, we are Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Why? Because we are children of God. Now, we love to talk about justification, don't we? I mean, we really love to talk about justification. You know, adoption, Packer said, is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Higher even than justification. Do you know that? That your adoption is the greatest privilege that can ever be bestowed upon a person. I mean, it's one thing to be welcomed, right? It's one thing for God to pardon your sin and to welcome you into his kingdom as a citizen. It's something else completely for God to say, I'm going to make you my child. And all of my riches, all of my blessings, all of my inheritance, you will share in. You will be blessed with. I'm not talking just a little bit. God's riches are infinite. His blessings are eternal. He shares them between you and Christ. You think about that? You're a co-heir with Christ. We're not just co-heirs with one another. And then there's Jesus. We're co-heirs with Christ. 
I mean, Christ's inheritance gets shared with you. Isn't that profound? Who am I to share in the blessings of Christ? I know they're infinite and therefore they're not limited, but still, what a blessing to be made a brother of Jesus. You can look up to Jesus and say, my brother. You can look at the Father and say, my Father. Remember those beautiful words in John 21 when when Jesus is raised from the dead and Mary comes to him and she falls down at his feet and grabs hold of him and Jesus says, go and tell the disciples, I am going to my father and your father. Just ignore the cat. My father, yes, there's a cat in the room. It happens all the time. We've all seen cats before, so we can just quietly ignore it and carry on. God is the creator of cats as well. My father and your father, he says. That's how Jesus views you. And so John Owen would say, adoption is the authoritative translation of a believer by Jesus Christ from the family of the world, the flesh, and the devil into the family of God with his investiture in all the privileges and advantages of that family. Brothers and sisters, there is a day coming in glory where one day someone will stand up I don't know who, someone will stand up and they will say, let us read the last will and testament of God before all of humanity. And he will open it up and God will read forth, Logan Hargort receives my inheritance. And you and your name will be there in the Lamb's book of life if you're a believer today. And he will read your name out and say, this one is one of my children. He will inherit, she will inherit from me all of my blessings. And they don't just come then. They come today. He gathers you up in his arms. Do you remember what I said to the girls this morning? That baptism is a sign, a promise of your father's care, that he will tenderly take you in his arms and minister to you by his grace and treat you like a child. Don't you remember? Have you forgotten what it's like to hurt yourself and run into your parents' arms with all the brokenness or to gather your own children in your arms? Or if you never had a parent or a child to see someone else do it, Oh, you can run into your father's hands. You can cry out, Abba, Father. I heard the story of a minister who went to Israel to view the promised land. And as he was walking down the road one day, he heard from the background, Abba, Abba, Abba. Abba, and he turned around. We don't think about these things as being regular words, right? He turns around and he sees a little five-something-year-old child running behind his father. You know what it's like when dad's in a hurry and the kid's like getting dragged behind the kid, behind the dad, and the dad's like <laughs> off in the, into the distance. Abba, 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 Abba. And then all of a sudden the dad stops and turns around and scoops this child up into his arms and holds him. And storms off and this child just has this beam in his face. That's us. 
We walk through life and we just cry out, Abba, Abba, Father. This is why Sinclair Ferguson would say, one of the greatest signs of spiritual maturity is when a person learns to say, Our Father in heaven. When they, they no longer just pray, Dear God, or Dear Lord, though those things are true, but My Father. My Father. Thomas Manton, the Puritan, said of adoption, in all other cases, if men have children of their own, they do not adopt. God had a son of his own in whom his soul found full delight and complacency, yet he would adopt and take us wretched creatures. He would invest us with the title of sons. And shall it be said of this believer, here is the Son of God. Do you know that? Believers, learn to call him Father. I, I know, look, I know, I had a great dad, and some of you did not. I know that. Some of you didn't have dads, some of you had mongrels for fathers. I know. And some of you really struggle with even the idea of thinking of God as Father because of the pain you have endured. Don't let a sinner steal the glorious gift of God to you. And you might say to me, but how can I do that? I don't feel that way. It doesn't start with feeling. It's about believing the promise of God and acting and trusting that God will bring feelings in the future to match reality. And so come to him. Take the words of Christ in your lips. Our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Pray it every morning until you feel it. Pray it every day. Pray it every three hours. Pray it at nine. Pray it at twelve. Pray it at three Pray it at six. Pray it at nine. Our Father, my Father who is in heaven. Until you feel the reality of what God has given you. You know, for since the time of Abraham, God has been calling his people his children. Don't miss out on that blessing. And if you're an unbeliever, don't you want to be adopt adopted by God? I mean, what a blessing. I mean, you, you might think it would be great to be adopted by Bill Gates. He's pretty loaded, but he's just got nothing on God, right? To receive the inheritance of God. Brothers and sisters, our God has bestowed upon us such heavenly riches that we cannot even begin to fear. From the Father, in the Son, by the Holy Spirit.
worship Him. That's the exhortation today. Praise Him. Adore Him. Bow down before Him. Remember the sacraments. Remember the inheritances. Remember the blessings. And fall down and worship Him today. Don't walk out of this place thinking to yourself, that was pretty ho-hum, it was pretty muggy, and Logan spoke to more. Appreciate the glory of what Christ has done for you. And worship Him. And may God grant us to have gloriously big visions of Him as He's presented in the Word that He might be glorified and magnified in all. Because to Him belong all glory and honor, right? Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, what an immense thing it is to consider the threefold blessing of God. You are worthy. You are worthy. You are worthy, O Lord. Help us to taste it. Help us to see it. Lord, would you give us affections that match the reality of what you've done? And if there are any here whose hearts are stone and cold, would you give them new life? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.